Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined by Patty Bianco and Alex Bianco to wrap up our uh, last section on Herodotus Book 2. How are y'all doing today? Doing very well. Doing good. Thank you. All right. Yeah, so this will be the last section of Herodotus Book 2, and then we'll have a Q&A and some little, little more conversation uh, next week. But before we get to that, I just want to mention that this is the time of year for giving uh, and Cersei so could certainly use your support. This this podcast uh, and others like it are part of what gets supported by by donors throughout the year. Uh, helps us to keep things like this free, to keep things uh, on the website free, and to to do a lot of the other things we do um, at a, the lowest price we can. So um, if you are interested in helping Cersei do what they do and want to give a little to the cause, you can donate today at CerseiInstitute.org backslash donate. All right. Let's get into it. Uh, I think it's Patty's turn to give us a little summary. And we gave her the really easy section, right? Right, Alec? <laughs> I, I would disagree. But... <laughs> no, um, so this section goes through the 341 generations of kings, starting with Ram Sinatus, um, who and during his time, Egypt flourished. He built monuments, winter and summer. Uh, he had a lot of treasure, and so it tells a really fun story of the builder made a secret passage uh, when he was building his monument to hold his treasure and told his sons about it so that they could then take the treasure as their inheritance. Um, but then the king found out, obviously, that someone was stealing from him, and the story entails uh, the brothers getting caught in a trap and one brother has to take the head of the other. So, so the brother sacrificed himself so that the one brother could get away. But then the king is pretty upset. So he devises another trap to find out who it is. The mother wants her son's body back. And so the brother has to go be a little sly, get the guards drunk to get the body back. And, then the king, again, is like, well, I'm going to catch him. So he just devises another trap with his daughter, and this guy gets away again. And so it was a pretty fun story, and he ends up marrying the king's daughter in the end. And then we have he, uh, this king visits the underworld, plays dice with Demeter, and gets a golden handkerchief as a gift, and they have a festival to recognize this return from Hades. Egyptians are the first to believe the soul is immortal. Talks a little bit about that uh, reincarnation. And then the kings after him, a couple of them are more harsh. They close down the sacrifices and the sanctuaries and all the Egyptians have to labor. And this is where we get what we think of with Egypt, with the pyramids. And so we have these grand pyramids being built as burial chambers for these kings. The son of one of the kings, Cheops, um, his son, Mykinios, can't say any of these names, but um, he's a little bit more benevolent than his father and uncle. 
but yet he suffers tragedy. His daughter dies. He entombs her in a wooden cow. And then he erects some statues. And then the oracle says, you're going to die in six years. And he's like, what? And he complains. And he decides, well, if I'm going to go out, I might as well go out in style. And so he parties all night and has six more years added to his life. Not knowing that the Egyptians needed to be in suffrage for about 150 years. So more kings come along. We get to hear about their pyramids. One king thought, well, I'm going to do it different. I'm going to build a pyramid of brick. And so he did that. There was a blind king who ran away, leaving an Ethiopian to, to serve in his place. And this Ethiopian was averse to killing. So he had people mound soil for their punishment. And so the cities could raise their stature by just literally being mounted on soil. Um, then the Ethiopian is done being king after a bad dream, and the blind king returns. The priest, um, Sethos, becomes king. He didn't like the warriors so much. The warriors didn't like him, so they did not come to his aid. But God did with um, the mice coming and helping, aiding him in his battle. And then we have not much going on. And in those about 11,000 years of generations, according to the Egyptians, nothing strange, except the sun decided to not rise and set where it was supposed to be on, just on four occasions. And then the Egyptians needed a king after this. So they decided to divide into 12 districts, making 12 kings rulers over those areas. They decided to have a collective memorial instead of just one pyramid or tomb. So they created a labyrinth and describes that in detail. And there was an oracle who said that there will be one king again, the person who pours out a libation in a bronze cup. And this one guy, some Semeticos, um, he fulfills this prophecy unknowingly. The other 11 kings did not like that. They banished him to the marshes. And then eventually he makes friends with the, I think it's the Greeks, right? The Ionian, Ionians and Carians, and he does become king again. Talks about a floating island, more kings, creates a canal from the Nile, and Herodotus claims he's just very discreet with all this mysterious stuff. I think that's about it. <laughs> That's that's a pretty good summary. All right. Well, I feel like we we like uh like I read Genesis and Alec read Exodus, and then we gave you like numbers in Deuteronomy and said, Hey, just summarize this for everybody. <laughs> it's <laughs> long, <what> like. <laughs> <laughs> long stretches in this pairs that are a little bit less narrative than some of the others. So um yeah. Well uh let's dive into it, I guess. What uh what stood out? In this section, because of that, I thought that you mentioned that story with the the builder was pretty cool right there in the beginning and hiding his hiding the hiding the, uh, the treasure or, or hiding a door into the treasure, I guess. Yeah, it seems pretty amazing that um, he would think of that and not tell them until he was about ready to die. Hmm. Like he's just holding on to that little secret on his deathbed. Like, hey guys, here you go. <laughs> It reminded me of the the newish Star Wars movie where they retconned the hole in the Death Star. 
the Rogue One movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because why is there this big hole that's so easy to destroy the Death Star? Right, So they right. created the story where yeah. the original builder put it in on purpose, secretly. Like, somebody it's got tired something. of hearing about it for the last 30-some-odd years. Like, oh, they left a big failed fleet. He's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Aha. I did kind of feel that way, like a, a fairy tale almost, because, you know, the guy, he, he sets up the sons, the sons go, other than the one brother, right? He does. <laughs> he's like, brother, you get out of here. And the brother's like, okay, sh- chop your head yeah. off. And, um, but he just seems very proud about, you know, how clever he is. He keeps coming, he comes and he gets the guy's he throws this whole scene of, you know, with the wineskins and gets them drunk and becomes friends. And, and then the um, thing with the daughter too, like he cuts off a guy's arm in <laughs> preparation to just mm-hmm. give her the arm to get away. And then he trusts, I don't know. I don't get why he trusts the King that the King would honor him in the end. Right. After all these traps. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. He he kind of appears almost like a like a an Odyssean kind of character, like really, really clever. It's all around all the traps and tricks and things. And it mentioned in the in the footnotes that, like that for both the Egyptians and the the Greeks, this would be a weird story about the, with the arm because like they would both find that as like defilement to like yeah. touch touch an arm like that. So, um, but yeah, it's it's. I mean, I guess what 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 option do you have if the, if the pharaohs like? All right. Well, I guess you'll be king, other than to believe him. But this seemed like a tall tale of yeah. like <laughs> there was this one time. That's right. If you get away with stuff long enough, get to be the king. I'm curious why he was able to go down to Hades, though. Like you're talking about the Odyssey, right? Why does this king get to go down to Hades mm. and have you know play games with with a god that? to me sounds like supernatural to bring a show into it i don't know if you guys ever watched that but yeah that i mean it's i guess we shouldn't be too surprised that there's a lot of connections because it is a it is a greek writing right it's giving us these stories but um yeah that's that it was a pretty big deal and it was odysseus had to have some help like figuring out how to get in and out and all that kind of stuff so yeah. the fact that this pharaoh can just I, to me it makes me wonder um uh, or not wonder, it seems to reinforce this idea that the Greeks held the Egyptians in pretty high esteem as being even older culturally than they are. And we've seen some of that before with he talks about them, like they had the gods before. We had the same god, but they were the ones that were like, knew about them, you know, before us and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's what it seems it could be another part of that, where Herodotus at least seems to hold the, hold the Egyptians in pretty high esteem as far as culture goes. I can't remember if it was in this, this section or the last one, but I think it was this one where he says, he says something like the Egyptians considered the pharaohs men. And he might even go so far as to say like it was blasphemy to consider them gods of, of any kind, which is interesting because I feel like in popular culture, at least in the sort of, pop culture revisionist history of the ancient world. I always heard growing up that the Egyptians thought of pharaohs as gods and worshiped them as gods. And that's why they built these pyramids. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to read one of the most original sources that we yeah. could possibly get 
and him say, oh, they explicitly did not believe that. <laughs> yeah, it makes you wonder, like, because it um, this came up, I was talking with, or Hawk and I were talking with Kobe, about, it's probably something to do with his stuff he's working on in school or whatever, but like comparing Greek and Roman, like sensibilities and culture and um, views on things. And uh, you know, he's reading a bunch of that stuff this semester. He's reading a lot of the ancients this semester. And, but um, even with, then when we started talking about the Egyptians and talked about they, and Kobe and I both had the same understanding that like the, the Pharaoh was like, it wasn't Ra, but it was like an image of Ra kind of like he was like Ra's array or whatever's um, representative, I guess, on earth in the same way that the sun is representative of, it's not the God, but it's, it's his thing, you know? And so where that line is drawn, right? Where, and then we were, I think we were discussing it in, in light of, you know, eventually the Romans start the, the Roman emperors kind of claim divinity as part, you know, I guess it's Augustus that does that first, right? Calls Caesar divine. And so to what extent does our understanding of the Egyptian version of that come from the Roman understanding of things, right? And to versus what Herodotus has here, which would have been earlier, right? And to much, and, and and maybe we just don't understand the nuance. Maybe it was maybe there is still some kind of connection with the divine, but not in the way we kind of think of them. Oh, they worshipped him like he is a god. Kind of maybe we've all watched a little bit too much uh, Stargate or whatever. <laughs> Aliens and arrows and gods. So. Well, he puts that to bed too, right? It's not aliens that created the no, right. built the pyramids. <laughs> I know. I keep laughing when I read through this. Like, I think I, um, I remember I was off there. I mentioned you guys, or uh, if it was other previously, but I just recently saw something about this where, like, new infrared mapping from space or whatever shows even more, like, large tributaries and connect uh, large rivers that connected to the Nile region. That don't aren't there anymore right that but you can see them um you know whatever under the surface or something and so it was like yeah the, this would have been really like really really wide in lots of places like mile wide in lots of places and kind of like the nile and they could have moved and they go to the places where all the stones are from so it's just like and then you have herodotus so it's, it's like so our most ancient source and our most you know high-tech source just kind of put together all the uh history channel it was aliens, man. Uh, <laughs> myths. So it's kind of funny. It's funny that's a history channel that would put that out there. Who people who clearly haven't read Herodotus but are running the history channel is is a little a little ironic to me. Yeah, and and it was interesting that they mocked the one guy who did want to claim that he was from a god, right? Mm. His name started with an H, but they they just. You know, they had statues of all the previous kings, and I forget the term that they called them, but it was basically a great and noble man, each one, mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. good and noble man, Pyramis, they would say. But the one guy who wanted to claim, like, oh, we have some divine blood lineage, <laughs> and they're like, nah. <laughs> Okay, so right after the the conversations about the or the part about the king and the stuff and the treasure hidden, um, when he's kind of getting into the pyramids, he also brings up um, the idea of uh, like reincarnation, the soul being immortal, essentially. And he gives what I under like what I've always known as the account 
they, I mean, where I know it from is from Plato. Um, but he's like, yeah, the Egyptians were the first ones to have this idea too. Um, and I was reading along and it says like, um, there are certain Hellenes, some who lived earlier, some later, who have adopted this theory as though it were their very own. And I like wrote Plato in the in the before I even finished reading in the side, like, haha, that's kind of a nice dig. And then it says, I know their names, but should not write them down. But it turns out he's talking about Pythagoras, which is like just great. That he's just um listen, you may have heard from some of your fellow, your fellow uh probably from the Pythagoreans at this point, right? Pythagoras is is dead, and so like these guys were walking around like this is oh like they came up with this idea and he's like mm, not so much the egyptians are the first ones it's just kind of funny I, I like his little little digs here and there of various things but mostly on his own people right mostly on the greeks he's mostly if he's if he's picking on somebody it's, it's themselves i thought the same thing i was thinking of plato it's like oh it's interesting <laughs> The building of the pyramids was crazy though. You put it up like it gets into like how much food like they have they've they have records of like how much was how much it took to get this thing done. Um yeah, is that like a grocery list? Like why didn't <laughs> they put every like he mentions it it would have been more than that, right? It would yeah, have been yeah. the clothing and the iron and everything. But for some reason they just write down how many radishes and onions and, <laughs> and leeks and things they need. <laughs> it's like Maybe. this is how many we gotta go to the store. We gotta pick this up. Maybe it's just what it survived his time, but it does seem it does seem funny that we keep getting like ancient shopping lists. That seems to be a thing. <laughs> I remember there was one recently about like from the Sumerians, and there's this one that gets memed all over the place. I guess about some guy who makes terrible copper or something. That's like that's like I keep seeing. Uh, it's like one of the oldest things, and I think it's Sumerian. It's pretty funny. <laughs> but yeah, that's what they. That's you're stuck with what records you're stuck with, I guess. And they knew the radishes and the onions. Even in even in Herodotus' time, that's what they knew. So, I think for all that labor, they would need something more sustenative. I can't <laughs> say the word than radishes and onions, but I can't remember. He seems to go back and forth about whether they ate fish or they didn't eat fish. I think some did and some didn't. Mm -hmm. I felt the the building of the pyramids was interesting because. Oh, I can't remember which king it was. Multiple of them, probably. But Samatikos, maybe, or Aripis, um, saying how he wanted to be the greatest Egyptian king or pharaoh in, in remembrance. And so he went about trying to build, the, I don't know, the most impressive pyramid. And it sort of raised a question in my mind of a lot of things. Um, one, like what the purpose of kind of going back to what we we're talking about, how there's all of these strange theories, you know, 3000 years later about why the pyramids are built. And Herodotus basically gives us a fairly straightforward answer, but it's still worth pondering in my mind, like why these tombs are so enormous mm -hmm. and impressive. And that, I mean, he kind of gives us an answer, which is that it would make him be remembered as one of the greatest pharaohs, right? Mm -hmm. And it, I wonder what it says about the Egyptian, the ancient Egyptians, that 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 is a one of the criteria 
that establishes whether you're a memorable king or not. Right. You build these gigantic structures. Um, and, and there's other stories too, the king's doing it for his daughters or, you know, loved ones. Um, it's just kind of interesting because we don't do that. Not that I'm aware of. Not, I mean, we don't even really make statues anymore. <laughs> no, I mean, it's rare, right? Like, the, um, like where I grew up, uh, as a kid in, in New Orleans area, you see more of them, but even those are older, um, because they don't bury people underground because of flooding, um, in, in a good part of that in there. And so there's all these cemeteries with these like big, uh, like mausoleum style, um, either they have to build up a mound and they, then they put you in the ground, but it's, it's in this mound. Right. Or they have actual like stone cement, you know, whatever, um, mausoleums. And some of those are pretty ornate. Like there's one that I always remember seeing, cause you can get on a bus in New Orleans marked cemeteries, which is probably weird to speak to people out who aren't from there. Cause like there's a whole bunch of them right next to each other, these cemeteries. And, um, there's one that always sticks up my mind from driving around going to my grandparents and stuff. It's this, it's this huge, like, deer or elk like at the on the roof of this thing and so you can see it from really far away and i don't know if the guy was i don't know if he was in the elks or whatever like lodge or if he was a hunter mm-hmm. i don't know what it, i don't even i don't know the guy's story at all i've only ever seen it like driving by but um so that's the only place i can think of it that we have them at all in this country uh maybe maybe arlington you go to some of the national cemetery stuff there's some some bigger ones for some people like washington or something but i don't know for sure yeah i recently visited a, I believe it's the Basilica in Asheville, North Carolina, the Catholic Basilica. And off to the side of the church was this big, ornate metal door. It was really heavy. And if you opened it up, it inside was the coffin you know, big marble coffin of the architect. Or the church. Yeah. So it's right in there, like the nave, you're in the nave, and then off to the left behind the wall was this door, it's like one of the side altars areas. And, and it was just fascinating. I mean, it was beautiful. Like it was, it was very well crafted, obviously. Um, but it was also just really beautiful and interesting because, yeah, Exactly. Like we don't do that anymore. Or if we do, it's very, and there's a cemetery near where I live, just, you know, a couple blocks up the road I can walk to. And it's good to walk around there. Um, Memento Mori. (laughs) Uh, But also it's interesting because, you know, some of the gravestones are more ornate than others. But the ones that are tend to be older. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the new stuff's very boring and very plain. Yeah, um, it's yeah. the older ones that are more interesting. They tend to have scripture uh, engraved on them, that sort of stuff. And I don't know. It's just really, really interesting. Yeah, Kobe Stream is from a small town in up in the Panhandle, um, but like her family's from there from like generations. So, so the cemetery in the town has like gravestones going by generations and all her family. Or, so we've been in there a couple of times and there's some really cool old ones. And there's one that looks like a, 
like a tree stump basically like a, the whole piece of stone is shaped like a tree stump and then it's kind of like like the top is like a slanted almost and that's where they put like some of the words and things are on there and um but then a lot of the other ones have a lot more symbols or artistry on the stone itself you know whether it's angels carved in or flowers or if they were members of certain like organizations or they fought in wars that has stuff that you know related to those on there but yeah it's few and far between on the newer stuff a lot even there the newer ones tend to be like the flat footstones that just have like the name and dates like real pretty pretty plain you know um so it's interesting how that how that's changed over time i wonder if it is the way we think of the soul Mm. the egyptians they had that belief that they would come back maybe in animals at first right it was a cycle of three thousand years but eventually they'd come back into another human being and i think we used to believe more as christians that we'll have a bodily resurrection Mm. right we'll come back and so for these pharaohs that want to come back in their greatest state right they don't (laughs) They want to make sure that they come back and have a nice place that they're mm-hmm. coming back to with their treasure. Yeah. That's interesting. The the difference. Um I mean and I think that ends up going into like a lot of the care we take for the places where we bury people too, right? The, um even you read like Wendell Berry, they would have remember like he talks about in one of the I think it's in Jaber Crow talking about like the remembrance day because Jaber works his digging graves part of his life and there's like a day where like people come out and they clean up like once a year they, there's this they, they clean clean up the graves they clean up the whole graveyard and um because like people who don't have family in the area anymore to come take care of their graves and kind of laments that so yeah it's a very different uh, relationship we have i think and and more and more so as time goes on but it's interesting I visited a cemetery in Savannah, Georgia, and it was just beautiful because they would have these these plots. You'd have like family plots, and so they would have different size of of headstones, and some would have benches so you could just sit, you know, among the the trees and and I don't know. It, I think there's something to that of um, how we take care of the cemeteries and those who have passed yeah what i'm advocating for is pyramids in the united states yeah lots of them yes not a wooden cow you don't want to they have they they have one in memphis but it then got turned into a basketball arena and now it's a bass pro shop so i don't think it's really living up to its full potential so Sadly, yeah. yeah. Well, isn't what well, is that? What the Parthenon was too? Uh, or that was a temple to the gods. I think that one was a temple. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting though. You point out who who started. Even the woman who was the courtesan, um, like she used her wealth to make sure she had a burial her own burial place, and she wasn't, you know, technically a royal, but clearly was. Um, important she's the one that was um uh like i guess owned by the same person as aesop which i thought was a little 
fascinating tidbit. He just kind of drops in here um, and brought to Egypt by their by their owner. Um, but then she gets free her freedom there. Well, uh, what's his name? Uh, Rodopis. Rodopis. Mm-hmm. That's her name, I guess. And uh, I can't remember who she said. They said brought her. But um, yeah, he owned her and Aesop, which I thought was kind of cool. But yeah, she she even she's looking to use that wealth she got, garners as a as a courtesan and, and to give herself a, a monument of some kind. Um, they seem to have an understanding of there was of having a lasting legacy in that sense uh, with monument that maybe we. We miss, although I'm not sure we build anything to be permanent anymore in our in the West. So in in America, so uh, you know, I'm not sure buildings are built with that that plan like they used to be. It's true. The brick one though was kind of interesting. I think he was doing a weird kind of flex there, where it's like I don't want to be like these other <laughs> pharaohs. I'm gonna We're, I'm gonna make mine out of I'm gonna construct mine out of bricks that was oh. um, page 179 king yeah. a and he talks about um quotes do not think less of me than other pyramids which are made of stone i in fact surpass them as much as zeus surpasses the other gods for my construction was completed by plunging a pole down into a lake and gathering the clay that clung to the pole from which the bricks were then molded I mean, it is kind of an awesome feat, right? To create big bricks and to create something new. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, well, it's a different layer, layer of work, too, right? Like uh, I, that may be flashback to the to, uh, Old Testament, right? Where, where the, the, the uh, Israelites or uh, the Jews are having to make the bricks, but then they take, then they don't give them the straw so they go get their own straw. It's a, it is a, a bit of a flex, but like, okay. I'm going to also have slaves making the brick, making the bricks instead of just hauling the stones. And um, yeah, it's pretty funny. I thought the story of King Sethos was interesting because he didn't like the warrior class of Egyptians. And then a few pages later, Herodotus reveals that the warrior class was like the most respected aside from the priests in Egypt. So, I don't know. I just thought that was, <laughs> that was interesting. The elected king that hates one of their most respected classes, mm-hmm. if not the most respected class. Right. And goes to war with no soldiers, funnily enough. It's all the, like, shopkeepers and tradesmen. And then yeah. wins by some kind of strange miracle. That was really fascinating. And I, I was I'm trying to figure out the moral of that story. <laughs> <laughs> Is the moral that the Egyptians were wrong about the warrior class and that they actually are okay not having them as this like... Because he says too that they were like the Greeks and some of the other peoples that they looked down on the tradesmen and the craftsmen. Um, that people who did that kind of work were not as highly favored and warriors and priests were. And yeah, it's interesting. We've kind of flipped today. I think we value 
I mean, our crafts are different, but we certainly seem to value tradespeople more <laughs> um, than warriors or priests. <laughs> yeah. Which is interesting. That was interesting because he talks about their seven, like seven classes, which is classes are really interesting. Priests, warriors, cowherds, swineherds, which I of course thought of of the Odyssey when I read those two as like the as two kind of interesting characters in there. The shopkeepers, the interpreters, and the helmsmen, each named for a particular skill. But it they all have their own names, they all have their own uh kind of sets of rules and things. Um it reminded me a lot of like when you come back around to like mercantilism and you have like these guilds and stuff kind of in the Middle Ages and Renaissance period. This this very distinct uh sets of people in society right based on what you do like that is that is pretty much unless you're a noble unless you're like there's just the ruling class uh they're very organized uh by these by these by their work um in a way that even now i don't think we are you know because our typically people work in a company where like they have they do a certain thing but the company does all you know, if you're the if you're the a programmer, you don't work at a place typically where there's just programmers, right? That's all you do is hang out with the programmers. Um, but this was a different kind of structure, which I thought was pretty interesting. Well, I wonder if it's a lesson for the warriors because he was the king, whether he despised them or not, right? He they had a their job to do. Right, it was they're the warriors. They should have went to war, and so the I, I kept thinking of Aslan, right? The mice coming and chewing the the ropes off of him. Um, so you had the field mice going and defeating the army. So it did seem. I don't know if it would be a lesson that the warriors weren't needed, but maybe that the warriors should have obeyed, right? Because that was their king. I do like this idea of memory, though, of having a monument, because even of that, right, they had a a stone image, right, of Hephaestus holding a mouse, and whoever looks at right, the gods, so they take remember it with the, the stone image. But yeah, you talk about the Hephaestus statue uh, with where he's holding the mice um, to commemorate even, even this occasion. Um, yeah, he he seems to be a little bit. Uh, uh, I don't know if enamored is the right word, but um, with with their their their, their movement toward monument about a lot of these things, and uh, some of them are so interesting, like the calf, uh, the cow sarcophagus, I guess, or tomb thing for the one daughter uh, that we talked that we kind of mentioned earlier, and then. Um, but just see, and then obviously the pyramids are, are, are a big one, but um, they seem to take all of this very seriously. And 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 Herodotus seems to appreciate that about them. I did like this one line, this line from, um, is it Amas, Amasis? That he had this, he had a daily routine where he worked diligently for like a certain period of time. Uh and but then after that he was it was drinking and hanging out with his friends and and when they criticized him he said uh 
when archers need to use their bows, they string them tightly, but when they have finished using them, they relax them. For if a bow remained tightly strong all the time, it would snap and be of no use to somebody or when someone somebody needed it. The same principle applies to the daily routine of a human being. If someone wants to work seriously all the time and not let himself ease off for his share of play, he will go insane without even knowing it, or at the very least, or at least at the least suffer a stroke. And it is because I recognize this maxim that I allot my a share of my time to each aspect of life. I think that was great. It's like, listen, but he'll either go insane or suffer a stroke. That was that part made me laugh. Yeah, that king was probably the most uh, normal dude. Yeah. You could tell. I thought his little trick to get them to respect him was pretty clever. Using the, he had the, he was talking about the washing bowl that owl people have at their homes for washing your feet off. And then he used that to serve wine at a party or something like that. Yeah. And they all drank out of it. And it's like, look, you just drank out of this, which is used for washing yourself. And now you're drinking wine out of it. So it's just like me. I was a common man and now I'm the king. You have to respect me. Yeah. He kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, King James. Um, because, like, if I remember this correctly, it wasn't for, for a while. They weren't, for, you know, it wasn't for sure that he was going to be the next king, right? They were waiting for um, uh, Queen, what was going to happen, you know, Queen Elizabeth didn't have any kids, and then, and he's just kind of like chilling in Scotland, right? Like, he's a pretty normal dude for a noble anyway. Um, And then when he gets in, like, he likes to go to the Shakespeare plays, he likes to hang out in, you know, in town, and, you know, uh, he's, uh, we know him, like, the King James Bible, you know, like it was like the, like his brilliant idea to re- to have the Bible put into English uh, in a standard form, but it wasn't. He was like, I mean, first of all, Kramer had already done a lot of work on that in a previous version, uh, but but mostly he made the King James Bible to appease the Puritans so they would just stop annoying him because they wanted a, a Bible in English, and he was like, fine. You guys will just sh- they're like if you give us a Bible in English and this, we'll stop causing a ruckus. And like he's just like, fine, I don't care. I'll get you a Bible in English. Um, and so yeah, just like kind of normal, kind of kind of clever, but also just practical about like just get things done. I was a normal guy, like you said, with the bowl. Um, and and then, but he was gonna do his ruling, and then he was also gonna do his relaxing and. Uh, Anyway, that's what I thought about when I was reading about Amasis. It kind of reminded me of James a little bit. But I liked him. I thought he was like a just kind of a breath of fresh air in this in this long line of the kings and things. I think like you were talking about earlier with the kings and them, you know, wanting the great monuments. I think also the people cared about the kings being successful in war. So the Amasis, you know, he became king because the other guy lost and they were not very happy with him. I can't remember if it was a a prize, something like that. And so the, they just come and, you know, make him king. He's like the people's king, I guess. Yeah. And then right toward the end, we get this, you know, right as we're kind of coming to the the end of the, the book too. Um, we get all of this interaction with him and the and the Greek wife, uh, 
I guess, Ladike and their their um, marital troubles or their consummation troubles. And he's going to kill her until she um, until she goes to uh, Aphrodite and asks for it to be remedied. Um, and make, she makes a vow to Aphrodite. And then um, she had a statue made and sent to Cyrene, which is where she's from. And that brings us kind of right back to the beginning of, of book two, which I think um, now having read books one and two, you kind of can start to see how he loops these cultures together um, to create this narrative, which I think is really interesting. You know, cause we start this book talking about um, uh, Cyrus, right. Is about to attack the Egyptians, I think. And that's how he kind of leads into talking about the Egyptians. And so then he's cycling back to that um, uh, connection with, with, uh, with the Greeks from, or, or with, with Cyrus from the beginning by drawing us back to the Greek world with this through, through um, Ladike and Amesis. And so, I don't know, I just find it fascinating the way he is able to kind of move. It's not like, okay, now I'm going to talk about the so-and-sos. They're all, it's connected through the narrative uh, of one people group to the next, which I think is, I don't know, pretty brilliant for a historian. It reads a lot more interesting than, you know, like a history textbook, let's say like, okay, here's a chapter on the so-and-sos. Here's, and you got to read like six chapters on different people. And then finally they're like, here's how some of these people started interacting together. Like at the very, like you're at the end of the whole book, you know? So I appreciate the Herodotus' style here. Well, we've been going a good 45 minutes or so. I think we've covered a lot of this last section. Any, any more thoughts from you guys on this last part? Things you want to make sure we people think, uh, think about or, Pay attention to you before we hit, head out for the day. I was trying to remember the monument. There was one that took them years and they didn't end up actually doing it successfully. Um, I can't remember which king that was. Um, it might have been earlier in the book. Okay. Well, well, something to come back to. Maybe we'll, next week's going to be our Q&A. We'll come with any questions that uh, we have from the audience. We'll come with some of our own questions about the text. Um, start looking forward to whatever's the, the next part. So uh, we can we can circle back on these monuments and stuff then too. Well, uh, thank you all for listening, uh, for joining us this week. Um, hope you'll come back next week for the Q&A. Um, you can send questions and comments to podcast at searchinginstitute.org. Be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network. And if you are feeling generous, uh, hop on over to CerseiInstitute.org backslash donate to give during this season of giving. Bye.